Walks Connecting. London Walks here with your daily London fix. Story time, history time. The great thing about London is that nothing adds up. It's like a shell game. The P isn't under the thimble you think it is. What you see isn't what you expect to see. The classic example is the Thames. You're standing in Victoria Tower Gardens looking across the river. That's South London over there on the other side of Lambeth Bridge. Everybody knows that. So you're standing on the north side of the river. So east, well, that's the direction in which the river's flowing. Downstream, to your left. And west is upstream, to your right. Now let's say it's late afternoon. Where's the sun setting? Oops, it's setting behind you. The sun sets in the west. You're not on the north side of the river. You're on the west side. You're not looking across the Thames at South London. You're looking across the Thames at East London. It's a great party trick. Tell people you're standing in those gardens beside Parliament and ask them, where are you standing compass point wise? They'll be wonderfully condescending. You are a bumpkin. Don't be daft. You're on the north side of the Thames. What, were you born yesterday? And then you spring it on them. The reason, of course, is that the Thames is swinging through an enormous bend right there. And at that point, London's river, which basically flows west to east, is flowing due north, making Victoria Gardens the west side of the river. More food for thought in that same vein? You take a train from Waterloo Station running parallel with the river towards Vauxhall, all four faces of Big Ben, north, south, east, west, will come into view in sequence. There, you see, you've already learned something. But anyway, the general point is the place is wonderfully disorienting, keeps you on your toes, is full of surprises. And that brings us to this day in London history, October 5th, 1694. The obelisk in Seven Dials is brand new. Everybody knows that English literature's great diarist was Samuel Pepys. But if you want to advance from kindergarten to first grade in your London studies, you better get across the fact that 17th century London produced another great diarist, John Eveland. And John Eveland was like a hawk. If something new came to London, John Eveland was across it. So on October 5th, 1694, John Eveland records in his diary, I went to see the building beginning near St. Giles's where seven streets make a star from a Doric pillar placed in the middle of a circular area. Now here's the thing. Here's the London pea and thimble trick. The area is called Seven Dials. You got seven streets radiating out like points of a star from the hub. So naturally, you're going to have an obelisk with seven faces, right? What could be more obvious than that? Well, fine maybe for a predictable ho-hum place like New York or Paris or Milton Keynes, where things make sense. But this is London, baby. This place is a shell game. So sure enough, the obelisk only has six faces. You've just been Londoned. But don't despair. It's no bad thing. And if you want to know the reason... The original 1691 plan for the development of the area showed only six streets radiating out, 
The obelisk was built with that plan in mind, and of course, in that quintessentially London way of muddling through and making it up as they go along, a 7th Street came along as an afterthought. As for the original obelisk, the one Evelyn saw, it came down in 1733 and was removed to Weybridge. I always feel for those bits of London, famously London Bridge, of course, in Arizona of all places, that have been uprooted and exiled. Do they get homesick? The original stone blocks, though, are still there. They were used as a horse block. You know, a step up to help you get up into the saddle. The obelisk we've got today went up in 1989, and yes, it has just six faces. Tradition, as Tevier, the fiddler on the roof, puts it. Tradition rules in London, teems nicely with illogicality. But as long as we're there, at Seven Dials, let's do a little bit with the area. Maybe begin, this is what you of course should expect from me, David, maybe begin by saying Dickens was haunted by Seven Dials. It was, in the words of Dickens specialist Elizabeth James, a notoriously unsavory maze of narrow passages lined with gin shops and dingy, straggling houses teeming with squalid, half-naked children. Or, as Dickens himself put it, Good heavens, what wild visions of prodigies of wickedness, want, and beggary arose in my mind out of that place. Love that phrase, prodigies of wickedness. Well, that's Dickens. That's the 19th century. Let's do a core sample. Let's drill down deeper. The 18th century first, 1751 to be exact. William Hogarth's famous print, Gin Lane. It's set in that terrible slum, St. Giles. Here's art historian Alistair Sook's description of what Hogarth shows us. Gin Lane thrusts us into the abyss of the slum of St. Giles, north of Covent Garden, where alcoholic mothers pour gin into the mouths of their offspring. The central figure, a crazed, half-naked prostitute with syphilitic sores on her legs, is oblivious of her baby tumbling to its death. Elsewhere, destitute gin drinkers are reduced to a brutal, feral existence. A carpenter and a housewife wearing ragged clothes desperately pawn their tools and pots and pans in order to fund their habit. Behind the parapet, a boy competes with a dog to gnaw on a bone. The cadaverous ballad singer, slumped in the foreground, is in a woeful state of ill health. His black dog symbolizes despair. Meanwhile, in the background, actual corpses are visible, including the hanged barber in the upper story of a partially ruined house. In this section, we are confronted by a frenzied crowd of drunkards, cavorting and causing havoc. One lunatic, clutching a pair of bellows to his head, even dances a jig while waving a spike upon which a baby has been impaled, a figment from a nightmare. This is a gin-fueled, topsy-turvy world of mob rule, precipitating the breakdown of society in general, symbolized by the collapsing building at the far end of the miserable vista. Drill down still further. Wave to John Evelyn in 1694 as we go by him, and we pull up in 1665, the year of the Great Plague, and sure enough, the plague first touched down in St. Giles's, the first plague victims were denizens of St. Giles's. 
And then you've got the church itself. St. Giles was the patron saint of lepers. Well, so far, I've just been working secondary sources. To finish, how about a couple of primary sources? I went to the Times, the oldest continuously running newspaper in this country. It got started in 1785. The first sightings we get of St. Giles in the Times are almost as old as the Times itself, and they are not a pretty picture. My favorite, the Times, in 1820, described Monmouth Street. It's really the main street, runs north-south, right through the obelisk. The Times described Monmouth Street as the object of more sneers than any other street in London. Today, the street is nothing but extremely upmarket boutiques and jewelers and fashion shops and la-di-da private art galleries and cafes and chocolatiers and one of the swishest and most expensive five-star hotels in London. The mischief maker in me would love to see the reaction of some of those business owners' faces if you said to them, nice place you've got here, old chap. But it must be a worry, the Times describing the street you're on as the object of more sneers than any other street in London. But we can go further back than 1820. The very first reference to Seven Dials pitches up a month later. Here's that very first reference. Wednesday night, between the hours of 10 and 11, Mr. Dignam of Earl Street, Seven Dials, was knocked down and robbed by two footpads in King Street, Seven Dials, of eight guineas in gold besides some silver. And from there on out, that sort of thing is 99% of the news coming out of Seven Dials. That's what Dickens meant by prodigies of wickedness. Another example or two. In 1788, I'm quoting now, Yesterday morning, as a clergyman was passing by the Seven Dials, he stopped to see a man in the pillory and had one of his pockets picked of what money it contained without knowing of the robbery till after he had quitted the spot. Or in 1803, two St. Giles watchmen, the men supposed to be upholding the law, convicted of being disorderly. Or this from 1805, the sentencing of a young 24-year-old woman, a resident of St. Giles's. In the words of the Times, the jury at first found her guilty of stealing to the value of 39 shillings, 39 shillings got her in just under the wire. As the Times put it, the value of 39 shillings would have saved the capital issue of the indictment. But the court observed the prosecutor had sworn to above four pounds value. The jury reconsidered their verdict and returned a general verdict, guilty death. The poor girl, her name was Mary Johnson. She lived in King Street. She was found guilty of stealing a neckerchief and three yards of linen. On being asked by the prisoner's counsel how he could swear so positively to this linen, he answered, it was part of a piece of his mother's web sent him from Scotland and that he had for many years worn no other than his mother's linen. Mary Robinson, in her defense, said that she too had a mother in Scotland who sent her linen and that this was part of it. Poor Mary Robinson, 24 years old, hanged. That's done it for me. I shan't ever walk down King Street without murmuring a prayer for Mary Robinson. A final point, Seven Dials was what you'd call a behavioral sink. The term comes from looking at the behavior of rats 
who are too many for the area they're crowded into. What happens is two rats will become dominant and they'll take control of about 90% of the area. The other rats are confined to the remaining 10%, whereupon their behavior sinks, deteriorates, degenerates. There's all kinds of mayhem, there's fighting, there's cannibalism. Overcrowded, unsanitary, desperately poor, St. Giles was a behavioral sink. And for a Today in London recommendation, well, let's ascend. Like a diver, let's come up from the depths of the behavioral sink. Maybe visit one of the little art galleries in the neighborhood, Unit 6, for example, or The Hook, and then treat ourselves at one of the Swiss cafes in the area. You've been listening to the Today in London History podcast, emanating from www.walks.com, home of London Walks, London's signature walking tour company, London's local, time-honored, fiercely independent, family-owned, just-the-right-size walking tour company. And as long as we're at it, London's multi-award-winning walking tour company. Indeed, London's only award-winning walking tour company. And here's the secret. London Walks is essentially run as a guides cooperative. That's the key to everything. It's the reason we're able to attract and keep the best guides in London. You can get schlubbers to do this for 20 pounds a walk, but you cannot get world-class guides, let alone accomplished professionals. It's not rocket science. You get what you pay for. And just as surely, you also get what you don't pay for. Back in 1968, when we got started, we quickly came to a fork in the road. We had to answer a searching question. Do we want to make the most money, or do we want to be the best walking tour company in the world? You want to make the most money, you go the schlubber's route. You want to be the best walking tour company in the world. You do whatever you have to do to attract and keep the best guides in London. You want them guiding for you, not for somebody else. Bears repeating, the way we're structured, a guides cooperative, is the key to the whole operation. It's the reason for all those awards. It's the reason people who know go with London Walks. It's the reason we've got a big following, a lively, loyal, discerning following. Quality attracts quality. It's the reason we're able, uniquely, to front our walks with accomplished, in many cases, distinguished professionals. Barristers, doctors, geologists, museum curators, archaeologists, historians, criminal defense lawyers, Royal Shakespeare Company actors, a bevy of MVPs, Oscar winners, I call them, people who've won the Guide of the Year Award. Well, you get the idea. As that travel writer famously put it, if this were a golf tournament, every name on the leaderboard would be a London Walks guide. And as we put it, London Walks guides make the new familiar and the familiar new. And on that agreeable note, come then, let us go forward together on some great London Walks. See you tomorrow.